morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Yes, those sound effects on that uh, video from the men's retreat were gunshots in the background, so uh, perfectly timed, I guess, with that. So uh, the guys are, uh, I was up there with them, got back last night around 10.30 or so, but we're, uh, having a great time up there. So, uh, so welcome for those of you who are here. We'll have a great time here as well. Um, as we get started, I just want to call out, uh, we want to, one of our missionaries, Lord and Chang, is here with us here today. So uh, let's just greet him and thank him for being here. Lord and spent many, many years uh, serving in uh, China, and uh, he is uh, now uh, serving uh, locally in uh, UCI, working with international students. And uh, we're so, we've been able to be a longtime supporter of the ministry, and uh, we're so grateful to have you here. And anyone who wants to get to know him more and the work that he's doing today uh, at noon, uh, having lunch at Fish Shop um, down in Encinitas, and we'd love to invite you to be a part of that. Uh, and uh, you can even pay uh, for the lunch. So, <laughs> no, but our global team will be there uh, with Lorden, and we'd lo love to ha invite anyone who wants to get to know him a little bit more in the ministry. So thank you for being here and for your faithful service for all those years. And, and we're so grateful to have you with us. Uh, we're going to jump right into uh, our message here today. We're in a series called Messy Faith. And um, Messy Faith, uh, last week we started off, and uh, we started with the topic of just what we're wrestling with is, can I be a Christian if I struggle with dot, dot, dot? And there's different things. And last week as we launched it, we ad addressed the issue of what if I struggle with anxiety and depression? Uh, can I be a Christian and have that? Or, or does that mean that I'm not being faithful, I don't have enough faith, or I'm not casting my cares on the Lord? As, what does that mean for me? And so we kind of do dove into that and wrestled with it. And uh, if that is relevant to you and you think, man, I need to hear about that and I missed last week, we have that online for you. We'd love for you to dive in because we want, the purpose of this series is we want to speak truth into your life that will give you freedom. And we believe that in Christ that we know that faith is messy. Would you agree? And just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything is put together and that everything's going to go your way and that life is going to, uh, that nothing will ever go wrong. Uh, that it can be messy. And so how do we process as Christians in the messiness of faith? Now today we're going to uh, address this other question. And the next question is this, is can I be a Christian and struggle with sin? Now I know some of you... <laughs> Yeah, because you can't. No. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that, now I know some of you are thinking like, ah, why did I come this week? I don't want to deal with that one. Uh, but, you know, really the, the heart of this is this. We know, according to Scripture, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that as long as uh, we are walking in the flesh and living on this earth, that sin is going to be a part of our experience. Sin is essentially any time we live our lives apart from the design that God has for us, the, the perfect life that He has for us. And, and so we know it's a part of our experience, and I think most of us would agree that, yeah, we, we get it, it's there. But what we really want to deal with is, what about when it's that same sin you go back to over and over and over again? What does it mean if, I know I, I shouldn't be struggling with this anymore? And for some of you in here, maybe when you hear this, you think, well, I don't really have anything like that. Because sometimes we talk about sin and our minds automatically go to some hierarchy of which sins really count. And the other ones that are like, well, these are just like little ones that every Christian has. 
And, and so we might think like, well, of course, you know, those obvious ones that maybe have the biggest ramifications. If you're abusive of other people, if maybe sometimes we in the church, like we always think of sexual sin. We think of sins of addiction to substances and stuff like that. Those are the obvious ones. And I know many of you in this room would say, so I'm good. Like everyone, I mean, I, mean, I might get angry every once in a while or lie, but I'm, I'm, I don't really struggle with it. But I want to go below the surface of that today a little bit. Because we all have those things. We all have the things that we essentially self-medicate sometimes to make us feel better, and it might not be a substance. It might be that juicy little word called gossip. Oh, it just makes you feel better if you can make sure someone's a little lower than you. Why does it feel so good if someone says, hey, did you hear about, and all of a sudden you go like, wait, what? I want to hear about this person. Maybe for you, you have this overly critical spirit. And it's causing you to be super judgmental. Maybe it's causing you to be prideful. You look around and maybe you think, everyone on the road, they just, no one took driver's ed. Nobody knows how to drive but me. I use that example because that is an overly critical spirit that I can have. I'm like, what's wrong with everybody? Don't they know I'm on the road? And you think, well, that's not a, that big of a deal. But you know what? What's under that? Maybe for some of you, it's materialism, and, and you just, you have those times where you go like, you know what I need? I just need some retail therapy. Now, and I'm not saying you can't ever say, I, I, I'm going to go out and reward myself or whatever, but what, what if that's a pattern? What is it that that pattern is solving in your life? What is that trying to answer for you? Is it a need to, well, maybe I need this so I can fit in. I need this because I need to measure up. Or life has just been hard and I need something to make me feel better. You see what I'm getting at? I could go on and if, by the time I, if I keep going on, we'll all then say like, Ryan, can you just be done and move on with the sermon? The point is this, that as Christians, we struggle with sin. And there's something at the bottom of that. Now, we want you, though, to leave here feeling free. What I don't want to have happen is I don't want you to leave here feeling condemnation. I don't want to leave you to leave here feeling the weight of your sin and shame and guilt and just go, wow, that's a great start to my week. So we, do, we, we, want, to, we want to remind you of some truth. We want to remind you in Christ, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if you struggle with sin, here's a biblical truth. There is no condemnation held over you anymore. Amen? That's done. Okay? So you don't leave here feeling condemned. Maybe convicted, but not condemned. As far as the east is from the west, we're told in Psalm 103. God, so far as God throws your sins away from him, there's no end. He, he, he removes your sins. They're gone. They're past. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Though your sins were like scarlet, I will make you whiter than snow. We're reminded in Scripture that our past, our present, our failures, the times we fall short, in Christ, it's covered, it's done, it's over. So you do not leave here under a, the, a, some sort of judgment. You got that? I want you to know that. It's important that we know that. 
We're also told in Scripture that we're new creations in Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's light. That's your new identity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that now you are new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you are a Christian, if you've received the forgiveness of Jesus, you are forgiven and free. That is who you are. We use a saying often here that says this, you are not so, a, a sinner who is saved. That's not true of you. You're not a sinner who's saved if you're in Christ. You are a saint, a new identity. You are holy and blameless in the eyes of God. You are a child of God. So you are a saint who sins. You are not a sinner who is saved. You understand the difference? The one is we now are something utterly new. It's important we start there before we get into the can I be a Christian and struggle with sin and answer that question. So your identity is that you are saved. I mean, you are a saint. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which I do not read this book very often. I was reading it this week, and it was perfect. Because in uh, 7 verse 20, this is a new verse. It's never been in the Bible before. All the times I've read it. I love when God adds new verses. <laughs> And it says this, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and, and does not ever sin. Isn't that great truth to re be reminded of? There is not a righteous person on earth who gets it right all the time. That is something that we just go, okay, thank you for reminding me of the truth that I already know. <laughs> but this is good to know. So God knows this about us. So, if we are new creations in Christ, if we are forgiven, if we are saints who struggle with sin, if we can be righteous in the eyes of God, meaning when he sees us, he sees the work of Christ, he sees uh, completed people, then what do we need to do about the thing? How are we to think about sin? And what I want to do is I'm going to take you to a story in the Old Testament. And, and it's in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I got to tell you, this is not, um, it's not a story I like. I actually don't like this story very much at all, um, because it just drives me crazy when I read it. But it's a story that I think we can find some truth in for today. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's a story about a guy named King David. And this story of King David is, uh, first we have to understand a little bit about him. He was known as a man after God's own heart. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says this, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So this is the guy we're talking about in this story. A man after God's own heart, who is willing to do everything God asks him to do. If you could be known as something, wouldn't that be a great thing to be known for? This is a person after God's own heart who's willing to do whatever God asks him or her to do. That's an amazing, amazing thing to identify him. And this was written in the book of Acts. So this is hundreds of years after David lived, and that's still his reputation. This is King David. We look to him, a man after God's own heart. In fact, we were told before King David was made king that the reason he was chosen the prophet said, because God was looking for someone who was after his heart, who, who had the same heart. He cared about the things God cared about. He cared about the people God cared about. He wanted to live the life that God designed him to live. Great identity. Second Samuel chapter 11. 
for many of you, this will be a, a familiar story. It says this. It happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they brought destruction on the sons of Ammon. So they went out to have a war, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now at the evening time, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent servants and inquired about the woman and said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and had her brought to him. When she came to him, he slept with her. When she purified herself from her uncleanliness, she went to her house. And the woman, but the woman conceived. So she sent word and informed David and said, I am pregnant. Okay, so this is the beginning of the story. I don't like this story. This story drives me crazy. This is a man after God's own heart. And there's all of these steps in this story that you just think, okay, David, what, what are you doing? Now, let me just set the scene a little bit. So it's, it's springtime. David's home. And some people make a lot of, he's, when people go off to war, but David's still home. Maybe that was a problem. But the, the reality is it would be often where kings would send their armies ahead to war. And he's out on his roof. It's the cool of the night. And he's walking around, and that makes sense. It's Jerusalem. It's springtime. It's probably getting hot. You go outside. You're walking on your roof. He sees a woman bathing. Now, this little note in, in this is probably, it's a, she's probably doing a ceremonial purification, uh, which women would do about once a month. Let me just fill in the blanks for yourself. So that's, um, and it would be the Jewish rite, and so that means that she now uh, um, wasn't pregnant at this point. He sees her bathing and cleansing herself or going through this purification, and he says, oh, isn't that Bathsheba? And we know that he was good friends with her dad. He was uh, one of the mighty men of, of David. And he also, um, her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was part of their mighty warriors as well. So well known. He sees her. Now you'd think like, how does this work? How do you see her? So this is an artist's rendering of Jerusalem about the time of David, uh, the best we can tell. And you can see how the city would be. The, the palace would be that very top building in your uh, drawing there. And this is in, uh, archaeologists are actually uncovering this right now. Now you think, oh, that looks like, it doesn't seem like a big majestic city. It isn't. It's not big at all. It's like from here to uh, almost, really this is about the size of our property here. Almost the same shape, too, <laughs> of our property here. So the, the palace would be on one side, and it's a very, very steep hill down. So from the king's, and the, the temple, by the way, would be to the right of this drawing. So this is how you'd build an ancient city. You'd put the temple on the top, and then the palace, and then everyone else lower. Uh, so you can see on the rooftop, or you can see everything that happens in your city, if you were the king, walking around on your roof at night. So he's there. At this point in the story, David is doing nothing wrong. He's on his rooftop at night, walking around. That makes sense. He does nothing wrong. He looks down. He sees a woman bathing. At this point, he has still not done anything wrong. He just happened to see her, unless he's like, I wonder if there's, you know, if she's out there. Yeah, I don't know. But all we know is he saw her, and that's where the story begins. Because he sees her, and then he takes the next step. Isn't that, he goes into his, his uh, ruler, or his uh, uh, entourage, and says, hey, isn't that Bathsheba? Why don't you go and have her come up here? 
And when I read this story, I just think like, you, oh no, what are you doing? So dumb. And we miss a lot of the story, right? This goes pretty quickly. There's probably some details we're missing. There's no conversation. There's no her coming up and saying, what do you want? There's no, we don't know if she's willing. We don't know anything about the story. The, the author just gets to the point. David commits adultery. She's fine. She gets pregnant. Now, at this point, have you ever had a sin in your life where you, maybe you failed, and you just thought, oh, I hope no one ever finds out about that one. I hope that just goes under the radar. And sometimes they do. I know for some of you, I, I, you want me to call, I won't call you. You're like driving on the freeway, and you know, you know you're in trouble, and you see the cop on the side of the road. It's one of those. And you just decide to slow down when you see him. But, um, and you just think, oh, I hope he didn't see it. How many of us do that with God? Or with others? <laughs> yeah. I hope, I hope no one will notice. That's what David's first response was. Ah, oh, hope no one will notice. She sends a message to David. Um, hey, David, I'm pregnant. And guess what? My husband's out in the battlefield right now, so, and uh, here's the other detail, you know that I just went through my ceremonial cleansing, so it can't be him. <laughs> it's going to be you. You're the one. So what does David do? I'm going to fast forward through the story. He goes and he calls Uriah the Hittite to come back. So he comes back into Jerusalem to, tell, to give an update. David said, good to meet you. Oh, so glad to have you back. Uh, thanks for the report. Why don't you go spend the night with your wife and hang out with her before you go back to battle? I hate this story. Like, what are you doing, David? You have this moment where maybe it's the, I've got to tell you something. I have to confess. I have to, whatever it is. But it's, no, uh, hey, go, hey, what's up? Go hang out with your wife tonight. And we find that Uriah, in verse 9, he slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants of the Lord. He did not go to his own house. Now when they informed David and said Uriah didn't go down to his own house, David said to Uriah, did you not just come from a long journey? Why didn't you go to your own house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Why would I go to my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife by your life and the life of your soul? I wouldn't do this thing. Who's the one after God's own heart in this story? Uriah. So David says, Okay, well, I, I tell you what. Stay another night. I'm going to have you over as my honored guest. So he makes him a big meal, this awesome food, and then he gives him some wine, and then he gives him some wine, and then they have some dessert, and he gives him some more wine, and he says, okay, why don't you go to your house now? So he sent him back to his house, and the second night, in verse 13, we said Uriah did not go to his house. He wouldn't do such a thing. How could he do that? When the army of God, the people of God are out in battle, how could he satisfy himself when all of his other soldiers were giving their life for this, God, this calling that God had for him? He wouldn't do that. I hate this story. So what does David do next? 
He realizes that Uriah the Hittite is a man after God's own heart. He realizes that he is, he is devout, that he is upright, that he is doing these things that David couldn't get himself to do. So what does David do? He's, he, get, he gives a secret sealed message and said, okay, Uriah, bring this to Joab, the commander. And the message is Uriah's own death sentence. It says, hey, Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to attack the city, which is a dumb idea, and I want you to go up against this fortified city, but actually I want Uriah the Hittite to lead his, he's going to be the one to charge, to, to lead the charge. And if, pull back a little bit, and if Uriah dies, it's okay. This is a terrible story. Are you kidding me? A man after God's own heart. So what is, Joab does exactly that. Uriah attacks the city. They pull back Uriah because you can't attack a fortified city with the big walls. We've all watched Lord of the Rings. And so he does that. He goes up and he is killed. And they tell David, uh, hey, we didn't have a very good battle, but just so you know, Uriah died in the battle. So we're told at the end of chapter 11 that Bathsheba finds out that her husband was killed in battle and she goes through her time of mourning in verse 26. And in verse 27, David takes her to be his wife. And now she's going to have a child. So when I talk about struggling with sin, most of us would say, at least I'm not David. <laughs> this is ridiculous. As the story goes on, again, we're going to speed through it. In chapter 12, a prophet named Nathan comes to David, and he tells him a story. He told David, hey, I want to tell you a parable. It's about this guy, this wealthy guy who had all this cattle, and he was going to throw a feast for someone, and one of his servants was poor and only had one little lamb. And the wealthy guy didn't want to use his own cattle, so he took the one little lamb from the poor guy and killed that for the feast. He told that story to David. You know what David said? What's wrong with that guy? That guy deserves to die. But since the law wouldn't pronounce death, he says he's going to have to pay back four times what he owes. What's wrong with that guy who had everything, who had everything he could possibly need? There's nothing that he lacked. Why would he take from someone else? What's wrong with him? Who is this guy? <laughs> kind of ironic, right? Do we ever do that with our own sin? What's wrong with those Christians? What's wrong with that person who says they're in Christ? They struggle with whatever. Jesus told a parable about a plank in your own eye. So be careful not to remove the little speck of sin in someone else's life when you have a glaring log blocking your view. This is that played out. And Nathan in verse 7 of chapter 12, says, David, you're the man in the story. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel. It is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and put them into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And, and get this, if that was too little for you, if that wouldn't have been enough, David, I would have added many more things to you. David, you have everything you need for the life that God has given you. Everything. And if that wasn't enough, I would even give you more. 
I will pour out, I'd lavish you with my gifts and my goodness and my provision and everything you need, I will give it to you. And if you needed more, I'd have given it. Why would you do this? And David responded, so then Nathan said, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil? David responds and says, I've sinned in the eyes of God. Forgive me. Nathan responds and says, the sin will not have the final word in your life. Your sin will be forgiven, but you're going to experience the consequences of this. Now, if you came in and you struggle with sin and you feel bad about your sin, hopefully you feel a little better about your sin now after this story, right? In a sense of, we don't feel like we're that extreme, but how can a man after God's own heart do this? Some of us come in here, and I'm convinced that you love Jesus. You're, you're saved. You're redeemed. He's doing a work in you. He's transforming you. And yet, sin pokes its ugly head, rears its ugly head, rises up in your life. So how do we, what do we do when we struggle with sin? Because, you know, the sin, I don't think David struggled with adultery. I don't think he struggled with murder. I don't think he struggled with those. He struggled with something else. He struggled with this, maybe a contentment. He struggled with his pride. He struggled with something was at the core of why he did this. And Nathan got to it. David, you have all you need. So what do we do when we struggle with sin? That's what we want to answer today. I have five quick things for you. First one is this. When we struggle with sin, first thing is this. Remember, so how to struggle with sin. First thing is this. Remember who you are. We want to always start with that. Remember who you are. In, Roman, in the book of Romans, uh, we're told in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. What should we say? Uh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. F- Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into his grace, which now we stand and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. So the first thing we need to remember is we've been introduced to this life of faith that we now have been justified by what Jesus Christ has done. If you receive the gift of of forgiveness from Jesus, you are justified, meaning that your sins are covered in Christ. That's not you anymore. We told you already, there's no condemnation for you. You are a new creation. That's who you are. That's your identity. You are holy. You are beloved. You are a child of God. That is who you are. We need to go back to that. If you're struggling with sin and you say, God, you must not love me anymore. You must, I, I can't be your kid, right? Because I keep struggling with this. I gotta tell you, I have kids who don't always do what's right. And I don't look at them and say, you know, I'm kind of loving you less and less. There might be days I like them less and less. <laughs> I look at my two-year-old golden retriever. There are days when he just can't get it right. (laughs) You know what? Then he gives that little smile like, but am I still yours? Of course you're ours. Still. Some days are close. (laughs) We want to erase that language in our lives that says, if we cannot live up to our identity, if we keep failing, then somehow God's going to be done with us. Let's erase that pattern of thinking. Because that's not biblical truth. You're a child of God. That's who you are. 
You might say, well, what if I keep having the same sin over and over and over again? I don't mind new sins, but what about the same sin? Really? Jesus tells, uh, uh, answers Peter in Matthew chapter 18. Peter said, if one of my brothers sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Isn't that a funny question? He's like, how many times do I have to forgive this person? Should it be seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And he wasn't giving him like, okay, so then when I hit like around 500, we're done? No, that was this language of jubilee, meaning like, no, as many times as someone needs forgiveness, you give it to them. If God's asking us to do that for others, do you think he would not do that for us? The thought is this. If you, I, I'm convinced, if you keep going to God time and time again, I'm sorry, I keep struggling with this. He will, he's just and faithful and forgives you every time. It's already done. It is. That's true. We gotta go back to that identity. But Romans chapter six, verse one says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, far be it. How shall we who, are, who have died to sin still live in it? Verse 4 says this. We've been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so may we walk in the newness of life. So, yes, no matter what, when you struggle with sin, remember you are a child of God who struggles. That's, that's the identity but you now have newness of life. So then, okay, I want you to know that. Now let's go to the next thing. So then what do we do? Number two, acknowledge what you've done. Acknowledge your struggle. Call it out. Uh, Dom said this this week, we were talking about it. He said, you have to name it to tame it. If you have something in your life that you're struggling with and you just kind of keep it out here and you ignore it, you, sometimes you have to name it to tame it. God doesn't want you to live in a life of sin. He doesn't want that for you. You know why? That's not who you're made to be. You are actually missing out on the life God's made for you. You are missing out on the abundant life that Christ has. If you're walking around with a critical spirit of everyone and everything, it is robbing you of the joy of the newness of life that Jesus has for you. And so we want to recognize it. We want to find what that is. And you want to name it. You have to acknowledge it. Find what that is. Sometimes that can be hard. Why do we want you in community with other people? Because sometimes they can find it for you. <laughs> so we want to name it to Tim. You want to acknowledge your sin. In fact, right now, why don't you turn to the, next, the person next to you and tell them what your sin is? Oh, <laughs> we wouldn't do that to you. Turn to the person next to you and tell them what their sin is. That's what... <laughs> no, we want, we want to acknowledge. You want to call it out. You want to say, God, I, here... I know this is a part of my life. I want to put it at your feet right now. David wrote a psalm, Psalm chapter 51. He wrote it after this event. And it starts off with this. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. We want to call it out. Verse 6 of Psalm 51, David says this, Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in secret you will make wisdom known to me. Just name it. Next one is this, turn from it. So once we name it, we want to turn from it. Literally, you want to repent. The word repent means turn around, go another direction. 
We want to do our best to learn to turn from it. Again, we're not trying to give you a list of rules of how to be a better Christian, but the truth is we need to develop the pattern of what, recognizing what the sin, the struggle is, and learn to turn from it. David writes in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, do something new in me. Create in me a clean heart. Help me to turn from the sin that's part of my life. And, and there's all kinds of things that we can do to help with that. There's a story of a guy who uh, was walking down the street, and uh, he's on his phone, and he's walking. It was after all the rain we've had in San Diego, and there was a new pothole in the street filled with water, and as he's walking, he stepped in it, and he's like, oh, are you serious? Got, I stepped in this pothole of water, and he walked on. I'm like, I can't believe I did that. The next day, he's walking down the same street. And he's walking down the same street, texting, looking on his phone, steps in the same pothole, says, I can't believe I just did that. I stepped in it two days in a row and moved on. The next day he came and said, oh yeah, this is the street that has that pothole. I'm not going to step in that pothole today because I've, I've done that too many. I'm not going to do it. So he walks down the street. He gets distracted. Someone calls him. He looks down, steps in the pothole, says, I can't believe I did that again. Day after day, he kept struggling and kept stepping in this pothole until you know what he did? He started taking a different street. Sometimes we need to learn to take a new street. You have to recognize what are those things in your life that lead you to that point. Now, some of these are more obvious, right? When they're, they're physical things that you do, there's things that you can change. If you're struggling with drinking too much, there's physical things you can do. You can get rid of the alcohol from your house. You can say, I'm not going to the restaurant that has alcohol in it. You can make those choices. Those aren't easy, but you can do it. There are things you can do. The harder ones are what about those things of the mind, the critical spirit, the gossip, the slander? That's where we want to just continue to rehearse the truth in our lives. It's hard when someone says, hey, can I tell you about so-and-so? Christians never do that and never happens in a church, but if you ever heard it before, literally, what does it look like to, to turn from that? What does it look like to run? We want to turn from it. So we want to turn from it. The next thing is this. We want to learn from it. We want to learn from our past, and we want to, look at what David says in Psalm 51, verse 13. Then, once I know this, you remove the sin from me, I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. I love this. He's gonna, you're going to learn from it and say, what are the patterns of my life? What have I learned about myself? How can I grow? Uh, in this last couple of years, I've had a, a couple really close godly friends who love the Lord, fun friends, Every time I hang out, well, not every time, but often when we'd hang out, um, I, I don't always see them often. Maybe we're hanging out and we'll enjoy a nice cold IPA. It's okay. <laughs> it's something we loved together. Each of them in the last few years came to me and we, we hung out and said, oh, where do you want to meet? Let's go grab a nice cold drink. And they said, I got to tell you, I, I don't do that anymore. I can't. It got out of control in my life. I was like, what? Really? Each of these two godly friends who loved Jesus, walking with them their whole lives, said it just started growing and growing, and it became something that all the time I wanted more and more of it. One said, yeah, it was like the whole weekend. I'd get off work on Friday, and it's like, cool, it's the weekend. Drinking the whole weekend. I didn't know. But as they told the story, I had to examine my own life and say, wow, I don't want to be that, but I could go there. I could be there. I like a cold, nice IPA. I love, when you grill, sometimes it's like, I, you know, when you grill meat, 
Sometimes that's the best thing you can have to go along with it. I just got to tell you. But it's really easy to say, well, maybe I need another one. Maybe another one. Why? In learning it from my own friends that can prevent me from saying, I don't want to get there. And they got to share their story, and I got to learn from it and recognize the propensity in my own life, an area that I know I could go down that road really easily. So when you learn from it, there's something beautiful that happens there. So learn from it and help others learn from it. The old saying is this, your history becomes his story when you let God be a part of it. So let your past, your struggles become a part of your story as you help others. And the last one is this, with our sin. First, we are going to remember identity. We are going to uh, name it, or we're going to acknowledge what we've done. So we're going to name it, we're going to turn from it, we're going to learn from it. And the final thing is this, we're going to turn our hearts to worship. I really believe this, this sounds funny, but when we recognize our sin and we go through this process of acknowledging who we are, that it should ultimately lead our hearts to worship God, to fall at the feet of the Creator and say, I can't believe that you still call me and love me. I'm gonna, and, and guess what? Even if it's the same sin you struggle with over and over again, can you stand in the presence of God and say, thank you for your grace? Thank you that even though I fall short time and time again, that you are a holy God that doesn't want to be around sin. You don't. That's not who you are, but you still welcome me in. How can I do anything but turn my heart to worship? I love in Isaiah chapter 6, verse, uh, in, in chapter 6, I think it's verse 6, where Isaiah is encountered, he goes into the presence of God, and his response was this, Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. How can I be in the presence of this holy, majestic God who actually is calling me by name? And he turned his heart to worship. See, when we actually acknowledge and see our struggle, but we see how big and beautiful and how amazing God is in our lives, it should actually not cause us to walk out of here with our tail between our legs, walk out of here feeling like, how could I ever do this? How could God ever love me? I'll never measure up. No, it shouldn't. It should cause us to rise up and worship and say, your grace is that amazing that someone as dumb as David who did this knucklehead thing, that he is the one that you call out as a man after your own heart? Your love and grace is overwhelming. And we turn our hearts to worship this God. Because he's invited you in, and he knows your junk. He knows what you're going through. He gets it. And he says, but I love you. And you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Amen? So we turn our hearts to worship. I want to show you what David says in Psalm 51 as he ends up. He says this in verse 16. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I'd give that to you, God. You don't take pleasure in a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices or the worship of God comes from a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The message says it this way. I love how it's written in the paraphrase of the Bible. It says this. Going through the motions doesn't please you, God. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned, that God, I, I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. 
we turn our hearts to worship, heart-shattered worship, where we just say, we are so ready for your love, God, poured out on us. So we turn our hearts to you. So would you stand with me and let's respond to God in worship. Let's cast our cares and our burdens on him. For some of you, you might need a moment where you actually need to name some things. You might want to take a moment just to say, God, you know my heart. You know my actions. You know my deeds. You know it's here. You need to hand it off to him now. But let's do that. Let's take some time and respond and know that you are welcome at the throne of grace. You passed. The entry requirement has been paid. And you can stand in the presence of a holy God whose love and grace is so much greater than your sin. Amen. So let's respond.